Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario will begin the gradual reopening of the economy tomorrow. Are the correct measures in place to make this happen? With concerns of the new variant spreading across Ontario, should Ontario be lifting the lockdown? Some doctors are not so sure. And a long-term care home in Vaughan says it gave some of its COVID-19 vaccine doses to relatives of board members and not frontline staff. Palliative care physician Dr. Amita Raya joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, with great anticipation, we were awaiting a word from Premier Doug Ford, and the speculation uh, was that uh, he was going to announce the end of the lockdown, which is going to expire just a couple of days anyway. And uh, that not necessarily go back to normal, but uh, there was going to be a significant easing of the restrictions. Uh, well, we got a little bit of this. We got a little bit of that. Uh, as, as I mentioned on my commentary at 810 this morning, uh, it seems what we got is lockdown light as opposed to uh, re-entering into a, an economic uh, recovery plan. But we'll let you guys figure that out in just a couple of seconds. Because there's some mixed message that was going on. I mean, parts of the Ontario economy are going to be grin reopening this week. Uh, and the government was trying to explain that we're trying to do everything we can and uh, a phrase that, well, if I had a buck every time I've heard the Premier say we're listening, uh, we'd all be wealthy people. Global's Brianna Carnegie is watching it. Uh, this is her report. The government stresses it's not a return to normal. We must continue to stay at home except for essential reasons. We're not clear of this storm yet. Three regions will have the stay-at-home order lifted on Wednesday and be moved into the Green Prevent Zone. That's including Hastings Prince Edward, Kingston Frontenac, and Renfrew County. Toronto, Peel and York will continue under the order until February 22nd to then likely be placed in the grey lockdown zone. Those restrictions will allow in-person shopping for retail stores but with capacity limits. As for the remaining 28 public health units, they will begin reopening a week prior on February 16th. Let me be clear, if we see the numbers spike again, we're prepared to take further action as necessary. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Yeah, let me be clear. Uh, that's that's something we've been asking of the Premier for the last little while. Let's uh, bring Rocco Rossi into the conversation. Rocky, of course, is President and CEO for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Rocco, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for continuing to shine a light on it. Well, we need to talk about this because, I mean, the, 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 sometimes we just get one of these situations where it seems more confusing than, than clear when we start to find out exactly what the Premier said. What was your read on what you heard yesterday? Well, look... Uh, Clarity is something we we all want. Um, there were a couple of uh, very important messages uh, given that um, were encouraged by, namely um, that as the reopening happens and it's you know supposed to be on an evidence based uh, basis. So that's why it's starting with those three regions with incredibly low case counts, um, etc. Um, but the notion that small retailers are going to be able to open as those uh, zones open with 25% capacity um, is encouraging news for many of our members who saw an incredible unfairness and lack of sense that big boxes with hundreds of people uh, could be open and yet um, small businesses where you could have you know, one or two at a time and really control physical distance, et cetera, uh, had to be shut. So that's encouraging. But clarity um, is is really crucial, as you've been pointing out, uh, Bill, in your in your commentary, because 
people have to make plans and have to be able to plan ahead to, you know, rehire people or bring people back to make decisions around whether or not to buy inventory, how long. It, it's appropriate that the that the province retain the the right to, uh, you know, to put the brakes on again if there's a spike. But then help us to understand what that number would have to be. What would the rate of change have to be so that we're not caught flat-footed, so we have an opportunity um, uh, to plan. And what are the additional steps to ensure that this reopening is different than the last one? Because make no mistake, you know, none of us believe that we're the ones responsible for the spread. And yet the reality is that the lockdown, as much as we've hated it, has significantly brought the numbers of cases, deaths, hospitalizations down. Uh, And so we don't want to have Groundhog Day reopen and have um, those numbers go up again, particularly with more virulent variants starting to circulate um, in in the population. So we want to see far more testing, including rapid testing. You're seeing, you know, hockey teams institute rapid testing that that needs to we need to up our game for everybody because this is no game, uh, and the federal government's already bought millions of these, and with really the exception of Nova Scotia, the provincial governments have not seized upon uh, that opportunity, and we need to. Yeah, there are a couple of aspects of this. I think you and I had this conversation well about a year ago during the first lockdown. Uh, and the thing that the, the medical experts kept telling us then, two things that were key. I mean, we individually had responsibilities, by, you know, washing hands, and, and not, they weren't even talking about masking then, but contact yeah. tracing and testing. Uh, and they said, boy, you're not going to get this under control. We've never got a handle on that, Rocco. We didn't last year, and we still haven't done it this year. I don't know when the government's going to learn that lesson. Uh, you're, you're bang on. You know, roughly a half of the cases, particularly in the larger centers where it's even higher, um, we're not able to track and trace. So you don't know exactly where it's flaring up and how it's spreading. And if you don't have that, you leave public health really with no option but to use the blunt instrument. We, we believe in lockdowns. With more testing, tracking, and tracing, you can have more surgical lockdown, you know, lockdown of individuals, of specific neighborhoods, of specific workplaces, not of society as a whole. But without that data, without that data, you're left with fewer options. And and that's a real problem. Well, and they recognize the, the, the circumstance here. And, and, and again, I, I've asked the Premier about this. I asked uh, Minister Fideli when he was on the program with us a week or so ago. I said, please, okay, I, I, we all want this thing to end, and we all want to do whatever it takes. But show me the data that suggests that the small businesses were part of the problem. I have not seen that yet. Well, and again, that's the problem. The data is incomplete. There is some data. Um, but it's on it's on half of the cases, not on 100% of the cases. And um, again, it's, it's why we're 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 encouraged uh, by what is being done with the small retailer. But we would feel far better uh, having testing expanded. The premier very rightly campaigned hard to ensure that um, testing be uh, put at the airports, and that's a good step. But. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's a couple percent of the uh, of the cases. Clearly, we've got to get at the larger numbers, and that means far more widespread um, 
uh, testing, and and then clearly all of us are are prepared, and certainly the business community is stepping up with our own um, uh, vaccination support council to to help public health units across the province, however we can, that once the supply of the vaccines are available to to ramp up, um, because at the pace we're going now, it'll be years. Uh, to, uh, uh, to to get to a reasonable number of people vaccinated, and that that clearly uh, is not an acceptable outcome. Rocco, one of the things that really struck me yesterday uh, was some of the mixed messaging, uh, suggesting first of all, as you say, uh, you know, that some of the stores are going to be allowed to, to open once again with twenty five percent capacity, and that's that's doable. It's not the optimum thing that we want, but I mean, it's a good first step. But then in the next breath, he said, but the stay-at-home order is still in effect. So in other words, it's okay for the stores to open, but we don't want you going out unless it's absolutely necessary, uh, which, which is kind of a, a mixed message. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, small business people don't just say, uh, hey, Rocco, do you think we should open tomorrow? Yeah, maybe. maybe. You want some consistency. You want to know that things are going to be in, in, the, in the same fashion for weeks, if not months, as you say, so you can order, so you can plan, et cetera. Uh, I, I don't think small business is there yet. I think there are a lot people are scratching their heads saying well, what are they telling us here no question still a lot of confusion now was just announced yesterday so we we certainly hope there's a lot more detail that uh, that we can share with everyone and we understand look there's personal responsibility in this and 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 businesses you know have been exceptionally uh responsible have have spent enormous amounts of money to reconfigure to get plexiglass to spend on ppe on deep cleaning in fact it's part of what has um you know led to a further indebtedness of these small businesses and why um why the last thing we want is a is a third lockdown because that would be three strikes and you're out uh i mean the 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 wave of bankruptcies at that point will be absolutely breathtaking and we want to follow good public health advice, no question. Uh, that's that's the top priority, but all the more reason. Be super clear and make sure you're putting all of those steps. Again, I feel like a broken record, but the, the testing, the rapid testing, the contact tracing, every individual, we have a responsibility. Download that COVID alert app. Uh, we can make a difference. We can manage this crisis as opposed to just react to it on a day-to-day basis and and that game plan that you talked about and and i'm glad you brought up the idea about restaurants which by the way are are still not included in this that's that's uh, still verboten uh i think i told you the story i mean this is before the lockdown happened i guess this is early december we were up at blue mountain and uh, one of my favorite restaurants up there in the village uh copper blue and we went in there just to grab a bite to eat around lunchtime and the work that they put into this place, Rocco, as you say, plexiglass. In other words, every every table is a booth now, uh, because yeah. of the plexiglass that they put up. Everybody was mask wearing, and and you know when they get the shutdown order, about eight or nine days later, they got to figure what else do we have to do here? I mean, we're playing by the rules. You know, we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing right now, uh, and it just seemed as if, as you say, this blanket shutdown. And I'm glad the numbers are down, but did it have to be as extensive as it was for that to happen? Well, apparently it had to be because we didn't have enough data to be more surgical. And again, that brings you back to um, if if you don't invest um, in that that testing, tracking, and tracing uh, infrastructure, then then you're you're going to be you know bouncing like a a, a pinball 
from lockdown to open to lockdown and and uh, because you leave public health with no choice. I, I mentioned in my commentary this morning, it's, it's, I feel as if these, these small businesses, well, they're in pandemic purgatory right now. I mean, they don't know how long this is going to go on. They're suffering, uh, and they're looking for a hand, not a handout, but a hand up right now. And uh, I, I didn't hear it that much from the government yesterday to say, we've got your back on this. It's kind of like, okay, let's go down this road again. But it's the same road we went down earlier this year. Yeah, we were encouraged the earlier announcement of the uh, small business support grants, the ten to $20,000 in outright cash as opposed yep. to more debt because these companies, you know, the small businesses simply do not have capacity for additional debt. And we're going to need, quite frankly, more of that. And some people say, you know, well, look, why throw good money after bad? If some businesses are going to have to fail, you know, they're going to have to fail. That's 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 reality. The problem, as you know, Bill, is it's kind of like restarting a, a fire. If you've got some embers to start from, uh, that fire gets built a lot quicker than if you allow the permanent scarring of thousands upon thousands of bankruptcies, which is just going to make it that much harder uh, for the economy to come back. And, you know, like your friends in, in up in Blue Mountain, um, you know, businesses are not just about selling goods and services. They're the hearts of our community. They're our main streets. They're our street life. Uh, they're the people supporting uh, the local charities. They're always there for us, and they need our business more than ever. So during this, and again, that combination of, you know, open but uh, only go out if it's absolutely necessary, have to reemphasize to everyone, and, and people have been stepping up, where their financial uh, means permit, uh, to buy local, to support those local restaurants, to order um, order uh, delivery, give these guys a break. Because the last thing businesses want, no one goes into business wanting to survive on government checks. They, 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 they're proud of their goods and services. They want to sell them. So let's help them uh, make those cash registers uh, ring so that they can get to the other side of this. We see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, with the vaccines, that tunnel is still way longer than we want, uh, but that that combination of support is needed to get us to the other side. Well, and I know he was guarded even yesterday, the Premier, that is, of course, by saying that a lot of the stuff he talked about is going to go into effect, uh, well, the day after the, the long weekend, which is coming up, the Family Day weekend. Uh, but again, that, there's going to be a reevaluation before then, so he said don't carve that in stone, that everything's going to ha be happening on the 16th, because if the numbers go up again, and they tend to do that after uh, long weekends, I don't know uh, exactly what the, the correlation is, but it seems to happen, uh, we could be right back where we started from again, too. So you're absolutely right. There's some personal responsibility here. I'm not laying this all at the government, uh, but the government could and should be doing a lot more here, I think, to try to, to assuage some of the concerns of the people that are, are, you know, putting their blood, sweat, and tears into their businesses. And we have a part to play here, too. I mean, we've been saying that. It's like a cliche now. You know, we're all in this together, but uh, we, we really got to stick to it right now because, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to the point where we're starting to wonder. I see the light at the end of the tunnel, as you do, Rocco, but I'm wondering, you know, how many small businesses right now are saying, I don't know if I'm going to be there for the tunnel. When the tunnel, you know, it's, it just seems to be getting longer and longer and longer. And this, uh, the, the government's got to pay attention to that. And that's, that's what the concern that I've got right now. I don't want to see uh, a lot of those doors that are closed now uh, not be able to open again. We're, we're on the same page, my friend. Um, and, and look, that support is going to be needed uh, for, for the longer term. If you're going to keep lockdown or you're going to re-lockdown, 
you know, make sure you've got, um, you've got their backs. Um, and beyond that 10 to $20,000, you're, you're going to have to look at, uh, the, the billions of dollars that the, that the government has done in deferrals, uh, mm-hmm. for businesses since the beginning of this, deferring a number of taxes and, and other fees. Um, and at a certain point, they're going to have to decide, look, we're going to have to write down some of those deferrals because deferrals in the short term are fine for cash flow. But 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 a year into it and, and more by the time this this ends, that's just dead on the balance sheet for for small businesses. And, you know, people have to get some certainty that some of that burden is going to be taken off their shoulders or they're just going to decide I'll never be able to to get out from under it. Um, so here are the keys. I'm done, and and that would be an incredibly sad day for for the economy and lead to longer term uh, costs um, to our society. Exactly, Rocco Rossi uh, from the Ontario Chamber. As always, Rocco, thanks so much for this. We'll stay in touch. Stay positive and uh, test negative. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Premier and and the Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Williams, yesterday were very, very concerned about the numbers, certainly, and the possible spike, but also about the the new variants that are available. All three highly transmissible variants of COVID-19 have now been discovered in Ontario. Global's Sandy Salerno has this report. The new COVID-19 variant first identified in Brazil has popped up in Toronto. The patient is now in hospital with the virus after recently returning from a trip to that country. Toronto Public Health says another Toronto resident has tested positive for the South African variant but in this case, the patient had no recent travel history or links to anyone who returned from there. While it's a first for the South African strain in the city, it is not for the province as a whole, as it was already detected in a man in Mississauga. The city now has 27 confirmed cases involving variants, most of them connected to the one from the UK. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So what are we dealing with here? Uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Zane Shagla, infectious disease specialist with St. Joe's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. No problem. All the best. What are we dealing with here? When we hear about these variants and you know the, the UK, the Brazilian, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I think you've told us in, in a previous discussion that we had that it's not unusual for these things to, to morph and to change as, as time goes on here. So I guess this was expected, but uh, it just seems as if there's, there's a number of different variations right now. What is happening? Yeah, I mean, we are interestingly seeing uh, 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 two different um uh, variants that are emerging. One is one that is, um, uh, uh, you know, this 501 mutation, which is the one that we seem to be associated with increased transmissibility, whereas the other is the um, the 44 mutation, which we are more worried about from South Africa and Brazil that are, you know, associated with more immune escape, which is which is the probably the bigger problem. You know, more transmissibility certainly is a problem, obviously, if it gets into the wrong place, like we're seeing in Roberta Place. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the emergence of variants that are um, uh, evading the immune response is, is more of a concern. And the other thing is these three mutations, or at least UK and, and the one in Brazil and the one in South Africa, seem to have had similar mutations occurring in similar regions independently of each other, which really does say that in a particular population, um, 
you're starting to see, uh, uh, you know, certain pressures that are pushing towards certain mutations being more prevalent and more relevant. And that may be the amount of spread in the community, but it also be, may be the amount of pre-existing immunity in the community, particularly in places like South Africa and Brazil, where the virus needs to change to essentially reinfect people and then, and then have a reservoir going forward from there. So, you know, there is some concern here, obviously, that there is some evolution, but at the same time, you know, it's a year later, we have five vaccines potentially, you know, there, there are solutions to this more or less. And, and again, it's, it's just kind of the fight between the virus and, and humanity. How do these things happen? I mean, why would the the virus mutate in the first place? I, I, I had one epidemiologist on a couple of months ago now that said, well, the, the viruses have a mind of their own. They want to survive just like we do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's exactly that, right? So, you know, every time any human being, any life form replicates, we have some errors that give us the differences that we have as human beings, different colored skin, different colored eyes, you know, that the evolutionary differences even between all of us. This happens on a higher scale for viruses because the way they replicate and the amount they replicate is hugely more than us. And so, you know, you get variations that may not have any benefit to the virus and they kind of just hang out. They don't do much. You get variations that are, uh, you know, deleterious to the virus and they eventually will die out because they can't really replicate anymore because of those mutations. Uh, but occasionally you get replications that, depending on the context, the place, the pressures that, you know, make the virus more fit. And, and again, this is a, a, a problem uh, in the sense um, where you see high rates of transmission, you see potential people where, where they're not containing the virus properly, um, where you're going to predispose to one of these showing up in the population. And because it's more fit, it's going to start taking over and over and over. It's, if it's going to infect more, if it has a bigger reservoir of individuals, you're going to see it more represented because it can infect better than what's currently there. And I guess we, we are seeing this independently in three regions of the world uh, and maybe seeing it in other regions of the world that aren't able to really do this type of genetic surveillance to, to see what's been happening. It's a little frightening when you start hearing about you know the the, the rate of, of spread in situations like that. I mean, I I think most of us were, are very concerned about the the spread of the original COVID nineteen, and now we're told that these uh, three that you mentioned, the South Africa, the Brazilian, and and the UK, uh, spread even faster. Uh, it took us a long time, and we're still learning, I guess, about about the original COVID nineteen, and now they're cousins here. These these next three, at least as you say, doctor, at least three more. Uh, what do we know about them? And, and is, are we, again, as we did with COVID, learning almost every day about what's going on here? No, I mean, I think the, the first thing for people to remember is that they spread entirely the same way as others. There, there seem to be a little bit of biologic differences in terms of potentially the levels of virus that are achieved, the amount of adherence of the virus to our respiratory tract, particularly with the UK variant. Uh, and with the, you know, 44, the, the South African and Brazilian, that they, the way antibodies actually bind to these viruses is a little bit more off than, than, uh, than other, uh, phenotypes. But this isn't learning from scratch still. This is, yeah, learning exactly what makes these different. Our tests still work the same. Our infection control measures work the same. It's important to know the places that saw B117 in, in the UK, Ireland, and, Denmark uh, are still getting good disease control with public health measures. Uh, and so, you know, it, it changes the game a little bit, but doesn't necessarily change necessarily the outcome in that sense. 
Um, the other important thing to know is uh, uh, our testing can now pick this up. And, and now in Ontario, essentially every person that's positive will get a test reflexively sent for all of this. Uh, and that we have vaccines coming down the pipeline, which is a whole lot different than a year ago, that may have some efficacy against both, you know, what's circulating in Canada, but when these emerge, uh, some some efficacy against these too. There's been a discussion lately, uh, although sadly not from the government officials as much as we'd like to see, about more rapid testing right now. But the knock against rapid testing has always been, well, it's not quite as efficient as, as, as the other methodologies that are being used right now. Uh, would it be effective against these these new variations? Yeah, absolutely. So these, these uh, variations, both our, our PCR tests and our rapid tests, would work very well. And, and what could make the argument more and more and more you know, the emergence of these variants in Canada, especially the UK one, which seems to be showing up in the community more and more across Canada, means more people need to be diagnosed. The barrier to get people tested needs to come down. And absolutely, there is a definite need for people to get more access to testing, particularly symptomatic individuals. Uh, and rapid tests, you know, are still a part of this algorithm. And so, you know, they, they, these will work well with South Africa, UK, Brazilian, whatever's here in Canada. But, you know, the, the bottom line is getting more people tested, more people isolated who are positive is going to have control over all of these at the end of the day. Uh, and so, you know, implementing them more and more and more is, is going to be a huge tool in all of this. Should we expand that horizon just a little bit and, and uh, do what some jurisdictions are doing, that anybody that wants a test can get a test? Because that's not necessarily the case in Ontario. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think the first, you know, in the hierarchy of needs is, you know, people who are symptomatic should not face any barriers to get a test very quickly, right? And, and mm-hmm. we're talking about this as schools open up again. You know, you want parents to be proactively testing their kids and not feel like they have to take three days off of work to go through the process uh, or, you know, tell their kids to minimize the symptoms. You need to give people positive incentives to actually go get tested. And similarly, in workplaces where we see a lot of outbreaks, yeah, you can implement these. I think, you know, you could even do asymptomatic testing, but if you don't necessarily tie it to some stability, financial control, sick day you know, you might not get the uptake that you need. When you do these asymptomatic kind of everyone come and get a test, you really get overrepresented by certain populations that have the least to lose if they have a positive test in that sense. Um, you know, the, the better strategy is rolling these out, making sure that people have access to them if they're symptomatic. Uh, and then the people that you really, really want to target these in core measures, you know, long-term care, essential workplaces, make sure you offer them more than just this test. You know, you offer them the incentive to take this test and the the care that if they turn positive, that they're not going to necessarily go broke because of it. Yeah, and we've seen that happen. Well, the United States is opening up a little bit more than we are in some ways, golf tournaments and things of this nature. But uh, that rapid testing is part of the process, I guess. You have to actually have a negative test, and you have to wear a mask if they're going to let you into an arena or anything else. Although I didn't see much of that at Tampa, I guess, on the weekend. But uh, that was the rule anyway as to whether or not they can enforce it. How concerned are you right now? You just talked about the fact that this rollout that the premiers talked about, Doctor, that this allegedly going to start on the 16th, uh, it's just around the same time that kids are going back to school. Uh, are, are we putting ourselves in harm's way again? Because we, we tried this this mixture before, and it didn't go very well. Yeah, I mean, I think there is still a need to, to revisit this, right? And, and I think 
you know, to say everything needs to be bolted closed for the next, you know, three, four months waiting for what happens with the variants and all that stuff. You know, I, I think a strategy of opening low-risk establishments, seeing what happens, using public health interventions, uh, and then in- introducing that emergency break and really making sure that, okay, we have the ability to pivot on a dime here uh, is important. You know, again, there are provinces that have had a lot of society open while still telling people to adhere to their household, and BC mm-hmm. is the classic example. Yeah where they've been able to balance this, right? And so, you know, it's it's not a model that's necessarily doomed to failure whenever you open everything up. Um, you know, you have to give people controls. You have to give workplaces safety. You have to have access to testing. You have to make sure public health are resourced enough to, to pivot amongst all of this. Um, and, uh, and again, you have to have the ability to then turn on a dime if things are going out of control and, and getting things back under control. So, you know, I think the, the province is starting to think about this framework. And, and that, yeah, again, I think you have to give people um, some hope and some context to say that it might work. Uh, otherwise, again, you're going to be left with, uh, with um, uh, significant issues at the end of the day. And, and again, three months later, you know, if, if things flare up again, say, okay, why didn't we take the window to at least give people the opportunity to do you know, open some of this stuff up and rather than none. I, is the, I'm not trying to point fingers here, but is the province doing yeah. as good a job as they should in this situation, doctor, to do that analysis and understand exactly uh-huh. where there might be trouble spots as opposed to simply saying, all right, we're, we're, restaurants are shut down. Uh, that when, and, you know, everybody's on, on the same level playing field. I got the sense that from what they were saying yesterday that maybe they're not going to do that anymore, but that's going to take a little more work. Yeah, I mean, I think empowering local public health units is super important here, obviously, and and letting them make the decisions about their community and be able to pull the brake by themselves. You know, there is still lots of optimization that needs to be done. You know, I throw sick days around repeatedly, but that's probably one of the things that we're missing amongst this this whole process is the Mm -hmm. financial stability for workers to actually isolate uh, and go get tested. you know, I, I think they're they're working on the, the premises of what's public facing and safe. But yeah, there are still underlying problems. The problem is the lockdown doesn't address those either, right? It's just a temporary measure to get things under control to buy time until you can address those. Um, and so, you know, hopefully in the background, see, we're, we're, we're again looking at data and saying, what can we do to optimize this moving forward? Particularly as we're going to get more people vaccinated. Hopefully that, that helps, but, you know, we still have a two to three month battle to deal with this prior to the vaccine campaigns being rolled out. Do the local health units need more autonomy to be able to do this? I'm thinking of, maybe it's not an apt comparison, but the, the, the food inspection, the restaurant inspections, you know, with the color code system that they have, you know, if you see, you know, green, that means you can get food from there. If it's see red, you can't. They, the local agencies have the ability to shut those places down. And as you say, it's only temporary. And basically it means, okay, fix whatever we saw was wrong here and we'll come back and reevaluate. Uh, can we, can we be that prescriptive at the local level with this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we, we have the ability. And, and again, the, the emergency break is made with the local minister, uh, the, the local public health units along with the chief medical officer. And so, you know, I, I think there is certainly a need for workplace enforcement and safety. And, and again, you know, local resources to do it. There's already an infrastructure built in with, as you said, restaurant safety in that sense. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the health units are very, very conscious that workplaces are part of it. I mean, I think we've heard regularly in our own city and peel that that workplaces are, are you know something that is driving the pandemic in some senses 
Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think there are the resources there. There's the training there. Um, it's uh, it's the willingness to, again, if things are getting out of control, then being able to, to turn back on it and, and uh, reevaluate at that point. I, I like to think that governments are talking to each other, and you used British Columbia as an example a couple of minutes ago, mm-hmm. Doctor, where, uh, and maybe their numbers aren't quite as good as ours in the, in the number of new cases per t- 100,000, I get that, but they're, they're, they're in the ballpark, and they seem mm-hmm. to have done it without the, the, well, what some people would consider to be some of the draconian measures. So uh, I, I think your point's well taken. There is a middle ground here that they, they sh- could follow if they wanted to, and but it, it's, it's going to take that kind of commitment, though, to actually, bear, you know, I guess, bore down into some of these numbers and see what, where the problem areas are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when British Columbia was also dealing with these problems, they they saw where their numbers were going. It was local, it was intermittent, it was houses, it was, you know, interpersonal gatherings that were private and outside of business. Um, they enforced the same rules. You're still not supposed to go out to a restaurant outside of your own household. Uh, but at the end of the day, they were able to pivot this and say, okay, well, if the issue is in-house transmission, then what is changing society going to do to this? It might make us feel better. It certainly will put us all in a, you know, more at home uh, and shut down some workplaces. But is that the strategy we want to use here, or are we going to go through a strategy to mitigate damage, what they've done in long-term care, and we're going to go through a strategy to um, minimize the harms to society, but not necessarily close everything down as our only step? Well, uh, we'll see what happens on the 16th, obviously, and we'll be tracking the numbers. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. No problem. No problem. All the best. Take care. Dr. Zane Shagla, of course, uh, from St. Joe's Hospital and Associate <laughs> Professor at uh, McMaster University in the uh, School of Medicine there, too. And we'll keep tracking the numbers. Like I say, some are doing it more effectively than, than Ontario is right now, but uh, we'll see how the new system works. I just... I, I'm. I'm very nervous about this because I'm, as you say, talking to Rocco Rossi and others from the Chambers of Commerce about their concerns. And then as I'm watching some of the fallout on, on Global National last night, uh, just about every epidemiologist they talked to said, I don't know if it's time yet. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, maybe we should wait a little bit. So the jury's out. And, uh, well, I guess we can have a, a say in exactly how this is going to be effective or not effective, too, by whether or not we adhere to all those rules. We shall see. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Something that we uh, touched on very briefly in the last hour with a couple of our guests, and that, of course, is long-term care homes, is we're worried about some of these variants uh, that uh, are, are coming with us right now. We've seen how it has ravaged, uh, well, places like Roberta Place in Barrie, Ontario, and other long-term care facilities. It really just underscores the fact that we, as a government, uh, have not done as much as we could or should have done uh, to protect the workers, uh, the staff, and certainly uh, the residents of long-term care facilities. And uh, it's now become a hot topic, not just provincially, but certainly federally. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh addressed it the other day and said, look at uh, how we take care of seniors and families. Well, he's got a solution for it. There is no place for profit in health care, but certainly not in the care for vulnerable seniors who often are dealing with dementia and other challenges that can actually speak up for themselves and defend themselves and say that this is what's going on is wrong. We know that we need better care for our workers. They need to earn a good living. They need to be able to have good pay, good hours of work so they can actually provide the care for, for residents. And we need to establish national standards. What are the best practices? What have we learned from this 
horrible pandemic and the way it's impacted seniors so that we can prevent it in the future. Well, it's good to see the dialogue happening as to whether or not anything is going to happen about it. I guess time will tell. But to that point, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Amit Arya, who is a palliative care physician specializing in long-term care and the co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, coming back to the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. I just, uh, when, when I heard Mr. Singh's comments, and, and others, by the way, who have echoed an, a lot, an awful lot of the stuff that you and your uh, group recommended a little while ago, uh, I dug up the, uh, the the list here about what needed to be done, in your opinion, uh, to do with long-term care. Ending for profit, long-term care is one of those. Uh, ensuring 70% of staff at each long-term care are, are full-time staff. And, and by that, I guess by insinuation, that means uh, decent salary, benefit packages, et cetera, uh, and give them some sense of, 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 of stability, I guess. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, Doctor, since, uh, since you and your group have decided to talk about this. What kind of feedback are you getting? Well, we're really overwhelmed with the amount of support that we're getting from our colleagues, our professional colleagues, other physicians, um, you know, um, you know, other researchers. And, you know, we have over, I think, 1,100 signatures now. Um, we actually have sent our open letter to the Minister of Long-Term Care, Minister Fullerton, and we're hopefully, uh, you know, going to get a response. We have requested an urgent meeting uh, with her and have expressed our willingness to work with her. Um, you know, alongside that, I can tell you that I've, uh, you know, myself and my colleagues, we've had many, many sort of emails and sort of people reaching out to us from different coalitions uh, offering their support. Because, I mean, we know that this issue of what has happened in our long-term care homes in Ontario, what has happened across the country, is it's not a partisan issue, Bill. It's an nope. issue that affects, uh, you know, all of the people that we love and care for so much, our, you know, parents and grandparents you know, some of our neighbors and colleagues. And it's actually, I mean, it's reflective of how we're going to live in the system one day, too, as we age and get sick. Well, and as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, I, I mean, you have expertise in this field, a number of the people that have signed on to this. I mean, you're right. I mean, every time I check in with one of you, the numbers have gone up and up and up. So uh, clearly there's there's some support here for, for what you're doing and what for you're recommending right now. Uh, but the other element to this, too, is it's not as if the province doesn't have a body of work that they can refer to. Uh, there's your recommendations. Uh, there was the, well, what some people would consider damning report from the Canadian military when they stepped in uh, last year to try to assist in long-term care. And, of course, they wrote a report about that uh, that had some pretty strongly worded recommendations and, and some descriptors about what was going on. So there's a, it's not easy or difficult to develop a game plan here, is it? No, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, there have been countless studies over the years looking at long-term care, um, and many of them have really suggested, uh, you know, similar recommendations. And what's most alarming for many of, uh, you know, the people who have signed our uh, open letter and many of our sort of co-founders is that, I mean, we actually don't even need studies, to be very honest at this point. I mean, the province has, you know, appointed, uh, you know, a commission themselves, and the commission themselves has really said that we don't need any further study. Further study of the study is not required, is exactly what they quoted in their interim recommendations on October 23rd, and that was based on addressing the staffing crisis on an urgent way. So we're now waiting for implementation of those recommendations is really what we need. Uh, and hopefully that's going to come sooner than later uh, because of the concerns that are going on. And to that point, I, I want to get your read on this because since you and I have talked last, Doctor, uh, there have been some tragic circumstances. Roberta's place in Barrie, of course, is, is maybe the most blatant uh, example of, of a variation of this virus that had just swept through that facility uh, and, uh, and caused death and destruction. It was just awful what happened, uh, but it's not a unique situation. How concerned are you right now uh, with these variants and the impact that it might have? 
I, I, the obvious question we as as lay people are asking right now is, are we ready for this? Well, I mean, first of all, um, it's not all doom and gloom. I will share some positive information for honestly the first time in a long time that, you know, resident active cases and staff cases have been plummeting for some time now, for about a week or two, and likely that is reflective of vaccination and the success of the vaccination. I know you and I, Bill, have talked about, you know, how the vaccination rollout was, you know, for, it, it didn't go as well as we wanted it to, and that uh, unfortunately did lead to uh, unnecessary lives lost. So that is a positive sign, but we're definitely at a critical point uh, at this juncture during the pandemic because, I mean, although we're very close to vaccinating all long-term care residents, I mean, we're at a point where we're considering reopening the economy and reopening schools. And although case counts in the community have come down, I mean, undoubtedly, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to see them going up again. And how is that going to affect our healthcare system? How is that going to affect long-term care residents and staff, uh, especially when we don't have all the data and information about these variants? Speaking about Roberta Place, I mean, the mortality rate at Roberta Place was just horrific. It was over 50%. So there is some suspicion that the mortality rate from the B117 variant, the UK variant, would be higher in this population. But we are hopeful at the same time that vaccinations will offer some protection. Um, we don't know enough about many of the other variants in general. So really, I mean, our our guiding principle when we're planning for, you know, sort of the next step here in the pandemic uh, really should be about planning for the worst and hoping for the best. I mean, it's sort of what we call the precautionary principle is what we should be sort of taking into account. But but you told us right from the get-go, though, and, and maybe it bears repeating for our listeners, that even those that have been vaccinated uh, in long-term care facilities, staff and, and residents, uh, that's that's not a, a, a shield, an impregnable shield. I mean, you, you know, you still have to take all the necessary precautions that we've talked about, the social distancing, the masking, et cetera, et cetera. Those still apply and, and probably will be for the foreseeable future. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, sort of, sort of several points you brought up there, Bill, which are all excellent. And I can share in that context that I was just reading in the news uh, last night that in Germany, there was an outbreak of the UK variant um, at a nursing home. And that's in spite of all the residents having received two doses of the Pfizer vaccine and 14 residents still tested positive. Um, but none of them, thankfully, had serious symptoms. So it's, it's hoped that, of course, that is the positive benefit of the vaccine. But yeah, I mean, it really shows us once again that we, we, we have to address those sort of critical failures that have been ongoing through the pandemic. We have to make sure that we have enough trained staff on site. We have to make sure that we have accountability for infection control. And a reminder that when we're looking at, you know, sort of now close to 4,000 people who have died of COVID-19 uh, in long-term care in, in, in Ontario, um, unfortunately, there's likely many more who died not just from the virus, but from neglect and abandonment, from dehydration and hunger. And that absolutely shows us that our efforts at improving long-term care cannot just end with vaccinations. We need to overhaul this whole broken system, and we need to create a better system which is actually providing seniors with proper care and giving them the life that they deserve. The, uh, the point that you brought up and, and your colleagues brought up, and of course uh, Jagmeet Singh mentioned it again uh, when he was talking about this up in Ottawa yesterday, uh, was was a, a, a re-establishment of, of exactly who's going to run these facilities and a re-evaluation, I guess. Uh, and this private versus public is, is an issue that's really developed a life of its own. And uh, I, I'd like to think that it's going to be the focus of, of discussion between uh, federal and provincial governments. Uh, is, is this going to be a jurisdictional fight or is there actually going to be a, a, a frank discussion about what we need to do going forward? 
Yeah, so, I mean, I, uh, you know, at Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, we really hope that, you know, we put aside all of our partisan bickering, all jurisdictional bickering. I mean, this is not about, you know, different party opinions. This is not about, you know, provincial versus federal. I mean, now there's uh, over 13,000 people across the country. We're nearing 14,000 people that have died from COVID-19 in long-term care facilities. So it's a time to put all this, uh, you know, aside and work together to sort of change the system and make it like much better once and for all. Um, definitely, I mean, one of the critical issues, it's not the only issue, but one of the critical issues is addressing this uh, sort of uh, how we have a system which is has this patchwork delivery uh, of care and often is delivered through private for-profit um, corporations and companies. And, you know, the, like the numbers don't lie, Bill. I mean, it's definitely much more likely that during the pandemic you were more likely to die if you were in a private for-profit long-term care facilities, 73% more likely. I mean, we know that, you know, in Ontario here, the vast majority, over 90% of homes that have had a hospital takeover have been private and for-profit. So, I mean, and, and we knew before the pandemic that these homes had a higher rate of hospitalizations and deaths for the same uh, type of patients. So now is the time to sort of act on this critical issue. It's very clear that the majority of Canadians, 86%, want to see long-term care as part of the public health care system. Uh, interesting to see how that's going to roll out over the next little while. Uh, and, and again, we've talked about enforcement of existing rules, maybe a reevaluation of some of the rules and regulations vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, the, the, the kinds of facilities, the, the, the population of those facilities. But it, a lot of it, as you've talked to us about, and, and some of your colleagues in, in the organization have talked to us about this, uh, hinges on staffing, the number of people that are actually on staff and, and, uh, what they're being paid, frankly, and I, and I know that, as I said, you know, in the past, too many people are simply dismissive of that and saying, well, this is just unions wanting more money for themselves. Uh, but if you have to work two, three different jobs uh, just to make ends meet so you can pay the rent and feed your kids, uh, and, you know, we've got a problem here. And uh, it, that's a problem that still exists here in the province of Ontario, and it's got to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, one of our... Um uh, founding members, Dr. Pat Armstrong, is one of the leading researchers in long-term care, mm -hmm. and she said for many decades, the conditions of work determine the conditions of care. How we treat the health workers on the front line is directly related to the care that seniors receive in long-term care. And through the pandemic, I mean, it was reported to the commission that there were PSWs who actually uh, lost their their homes and were living in shelters. And unfortunately, uh, this led to an outbreak in the shelter system because they were working in long-term care as well. And I can tell you from my frontline experience working um, in long-term care homes, I regularly hear from frontline staff, PSWs, they don't have PPE, and they're struggling to sort of, you know, pay their grocery bill and pay their rent. And that absolutely cannot happen um, during a pandemic or afterwards. I mean, we know that, I mean, you know, some of these homes which have had the most appalling situations where people are going without food and hunger, you know, without food and water, it's directly related to understaffing. So why is there not a massive uh, staffing recruitment effort at this point in time? Um, why are we not improving the working conditions to make sure that people are being, being paid what they deserve? People are being given paid sick leave, proper PPE and benefits and permanent jobs. I mean, we cannot have this system where we have agency workings move, moving from home to home. Of course, that's a risk for spread of the virus bill. But it's also, I mean, it's not good for continuity of care. If you're an agency staff stepping into a long-term care home today, I mean, you won't know where the equipment is. You don't know the residents. And you, you don't have what's so important to providing frontline care here, 
the you know the actual relationships with mm-hmm. with the people who live there. Uh, got a couple of minutes left here. I want to get your uh, take on the story that we mentioned just a little while ago from uh, Vaughan, Ontario, just uh, mm. north of Toronto, of course. Uh, COVID-19 vaccines given to family and board members uh, and non-frontline staff. Uh, when, uh, I guess, faced with this, the, the rationale that they gave was, well, this was the stuff was about to expire, and we didn't want to just throw it out, so uh, we called these people in and had it. Uh, that seems pretty flimsy to me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's reflective of a broader system where it's the ownership and the administration that holds real power over what happens in these long-term care homes. And it's not the residents and their families and the staff. I mean, it's obviously reflective of big problems that have occurred with the vaccine rollout in long-term care, where basically the doses uh, that we gave initially didn't go into the right arms. I mean, it should have been very obvious that the first doses should have been prioritized for those who are most likely to die and suffer from COVID-19. People who live in long-term care homes uh, and retirement homes, as well as seniors living in the community. So this absolutely doesn't make any sense. Um, and it's, I, I, it's, it's absolutely incorrect. Well, and again, for the time it took them to actually get on the phone and said, to, you know, to their Uncle Bob or whoever, come on down here and get a vaccination. Uh, don't tell me in, the, in that community that there weren't other places that they could have simply called and said, look, uh, you know, we've got some left over. It's, you know, we've got all we need here. Uh, it could have been a shelter. It could have been any number of other facilities like this. I mean, this, this is queue jumping and this is not what we want to see happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. It, it just once again doesn't make sense. I mean, I can tell you, I mean, we've talked a lot about long-term care bill and that's definitely uh, a big area where I work, but I also see people who are in the community in home care who have a civil, similar risk of dying from COVID-19 uh, through my practice, who may have years or months of life left, who definitely are anxiously awaiting to, you know, you know, receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. Their caregivers and the staff who look after them, the health workers are extremely vulnerable and they still haven't gotten it. And they're very sick. So absolutely. I mean, we know that seniors are absolutely disproportionately affected by this pandemic and by COVID-19. And, um, you know, there was a way out where they didn't have to offer it to their friends and family. Very distressing. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Stay well and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill. Have a good Take day. Take care. Dr. Amit Ari, of course, palliative care physician and uh, one of the co-founders of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.